Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Good morning. Apparently I still have something to say. So first, I, I just want to honor and celebrate the birth of Martin Luther King Jr. on this date, believed in the potential for a human community of love, kindness, and equality. We live in the light of his shining aspiration and a recognition of how much work remains to be done. Jay, he was a wonderful example of using language to bring light to our shared predicament and to invite us to consider the path to equality and justice not only as civil rights, but as basic goodness and fairness. So we honor his memory today. So yesterday, Flint began by saying he was planning a walk together, not a lecture. I love that. And he followed Guogu, who declares you are already enlightened, by saying he would phrase it as we are already enlightened. And as we walked, he pointed out the key features of Gogu's teaching in his book, Silent Illumination and Lion's Roar article, You Are Already Enlightened. Today, we'll continue our walk, returning to those features of Silent Illumination from another perspective. Some of you have already made a beautiful segue to this view in your comments and appreciations yesterday and this morning. So now I want to view these profound teachings as they apply to our Sangha, expanding our view beyond the personal, as Flint suggested, to the transpersonal or the collective. Can these teachings on silent illumination clearly directed to individuals and their personal practice path also have meaning for a spiritual community? You're now familiar with the fundamental concepts Flint presented yesterday so this will be familiar terrain, but it raises a fundamental question. Can a Sangha be enlightened? Is a Sangha already enlightened? And what would that mean? So first, a tiny bit of background about the three key figures in the teaching of silent elimination as we've been presenting it. The first is, uh, as you know, Hong Zhu, whose um, poem I read this morning, uh, who lived from 1091 to 1157. He was quite an incredible Chan master, child prodigy, who by the age of five had memorized the four classic books of Confucianism and had a tremendous command of Chinese language and a love of poetry. So he taught by silent illumination, not a method or a technique, but rather as true awakening. So um, it cannot be practiced or actualized because it's something intrinsically full and complete, he said. Others cannot defile it. It is thoroughly pure to its depth. Precisely at the place where purity is full and complete is where you must open your eyes and recognize it. When illumination is thorough, self is relinquished completely. When experiencing is clear, your steps are then solid and grounded. And elsewhere, he wrote, the correct way of practice is to simply sit in stillness and silently investigate. Deep down, one reaches a state 
where externally one is no longer swayed by causes and conditions. The mind being empty, it is all embracing, its luminosity being wondrous, it is precisely apt and impartial. So this practice that of silent illumination was in contrast with the contemporaneous practice of working with Gongan or koans, um, which was uh, one of his rival teachers um, specialized in, and they had uh, quite a you know lively communication back and forth about the uh, merits of each of their practices. But they all they both sent sent students to each other. So. Sheng Yen took up this teaching of silent illumination. And a little background about Sheng Yen, he was born in 1931 and died in 2009. So he's a contemporary teacher and the founder of Dharma Drum Mountain, a Buddhist organization based in Taiwan. It's a huge international Sangha and there's a giant monastery there. Um, it's one of the most influential Buddhist organizations in Chinese Buddhism. Um, and he was considered one of the four heavenly kings and Dharma Drum Mons, um, uh, Mountain, one of the four great mountains or four major Buddhist organizations of Taiwanese Buddhism. At Dharma Drum Mountain, its monastery complex, it has two universities and a college, for example. So the organization also has a very strong environmental mission and Sheng Yan himself um, supervised the construction of every detail of that monastery to make sure that it didn't have any adverse effects on the environment. So he became a monk at age 13. He served in the army in Taiwan in 1949 and returned to the monastery in 1959. And he did in 1961 to 1968, a solitary retreat. He also received a PhD in Buddhist literature at Risho University in Japan, a very, very prestigious university um, and full transmission in both the Soto Zen and Linzai, Rinzai Zen traditions. Um, he taught in the US starting in 1975 and established Chan Meditation Center in Queens, New York, and a retreat center, Dharma Drum Retreat Center at Pine Bush, New York in 1997. He suffered from poor health most of his life, yet he continued teaching until he passed away in 2009. He wrote and published 23 books and his autobiography, autobiography is called Footprints in the Snow. So his student, um, is Guo Gu. Uh, he was born Jimmy Yu in 1968, also um, a, a, Zen, a Chan teacher and a scholar of Buddhism. He was the bassist for the American 1980s hardcore bands, the original Death Before Dishonor and Judge. I found this really um, surprising. Um, after his youthful days and hardcore straight edge, he returned to Buddhism and became a monk under Sheng Yan. So in 2000, he left monasticism to pursue academia. He got an MA in Chinese Buddhist studies from University of Kansas and a PhD from Princeton University's Department of Religion in 2008. So he's currently an associate professor of religion at Florida State, teaching courses in East Asian religious traditions, especially Chinese Buddhism and late imperial Chinese cultural history. So, his research interests include the cultural history of the body, Buddhist monasticism, Chans and Buddhism and popular religions within the broader context of 15th to 17th century China. So he has academic books that he's published also. Um, and uh, he was Sheng Yan's translator, attendant and assistant in leading Chan retreats um, and first received Inca 
um, in, in 1995 and subsequently received several Incas from him, the last one being in 2007. So he's the founder and Dharma teacher of the Tallahassee Chan Center in Tallahassee, Florida, and founder of the Dharma Relief Leaf Project, which provided um, something like half a million masks to um, hospital workers in un underserved communities. So right now he's working on a racism project where they're providing funding for um, African-American Buddhist teachers. So um, that's a little bit of background, just so that you know that these are really profound, deep teachers. So let's begin our walk together through the teachings of silent illumination. Guo Gu writes, Chan practice is about investigating our intrinsic awakened nature. It requires us to remove the obscurations, self-attachment, and all of its emotional afflictions and negative habitual patterns that conceal our inherent freedom so that we can express it in the midst of daily life. I began to wonder as I read these words, can we as a saga investigate our collective intrinsic awakened nature? Can we remove the obscurations that conceal our inherent freedom so that we can express it as a sangha in the midst of worldly life? Can we express somehow that awakened nature he calls silent illumination? So here's what Gogu says about investigation, which we might also call inquiry. The term is made up of Chinese characters, Ju and Kan, which mean partaking, integrating, and thoroughly penetrating. What can that mean for a Sangha? Plus T, which means embodiment, experiencing. So this term translated as investigation does not mean an intellectual process, but an embodied experiential activity. Our way of being together is not an intellectual debate or discussion, not bound by ideas or concepts, theories or models. Groups can easily get caught up in this kind of activity and it becomes a kind of language game or even a war. There are definitional arguments, hair splitting, textual analyses, scholarly debates. We may find such activity enjoyable or upsetting or off-putting or engaging, but they must never be the basis of our relating, our community. We investigate this life rather with embodied actualized and lived experiencing as community. This we do best together. Investigation that is confined to our own internal experience is limited and can easily serve to just reinforce our conditioning. This is the famous problem of doing your own research on the internet. Through our relationships, especially with teachers, mentors, and Sangha members, we gain a larger perspective and our investigation expands to the whole cosmos. We also have some trusted reality checks to distinguish together our stories and conditioned reactivity from actualities. In our awake, alive connection with each other, we have other eyes to see, other ears to hear, other voices, other bodies, other reflections for experiencing our lives. It's not about who is right and who is wrong. It's about expanding the view and discovering and cherishing the perspectives so that our community can move and grow in wisdom and compassion. So Guo Gu says that silence, 
silence and silent illumination is a metaphor for the wisdom of emptiness. It also means quiescence, formlessness, spaciousness, stillness. These are all Hongzhu's poetic terms for the Mahayana teaching of selflessness. So a bit of a clarification here. In Buddhism, selflessness does not mean thinking of others rather than oneself. It does not carry any connotation of self-sacrifice or altruism. It refers to the realization that nothing whatsoever has a separate, solid, permanent self or essence. Everything changes over time. Everything comes into existence because of the causes and conditions that created it. Everything lasts as long as causes and conditions support it. And everything ultimately disappears when it is no longer supported by causes and conditions. We are composed of networks and processes of relating. The realization of selflessness does not mean that there is nothing there or that we are somehow non-existent. That would be the error of nihilism, which the Buddha refuted. It simply means that we and everything we see are constantly transforming and dependent on many, many other factors. There is no core substantial self within us, only patterns of activity, some regular or habitual, some quite irregular and spontaneous. Breathing, circulating blood, activating an immune system, having a conversation, a memory, a really great idea, a lunch break, just activity. Our investigation and meditation leads us inevitably to this recognition. Our sense of self depends on the functioning of complex systems of brain chemicals, structural supports from bones and muscles and tendons, digestion, breathing, heartbeats, and so on, not to mention the reactions and reflections we get from others. So what does this sense of silence mean in community? First, we have to note that for some, silence carries the connotations of silencing or being silenced, both abuses of power. And some stay silent in groups because of their conditioning, shyness, or fears, or because of the cultural norms in the societies they've come from. That is not what this term is about here. Respectfully, we listen to each other, not shoving our own opinions onto others, not dominating the conversation or insisting on our views. We drop our personal agenda and listen for the wisdom and compassion of the larger heart mind we become when we are together. Even while dropping our own agenda, we never drop our ethical foundation, our discernment, or our participation. So it's important as a function of silence to also speak from that place of silent illumination so that we can cultivate the true wisdom of the Sangha. So there's a parable for silent illumination in community. It's a very well-known parable in Buddhism of the blind man and the elephant. So the blind man and the elephant story is an individualistic story pointing to the limitations of our experience and understanding. And sometimes it's told as the story of a group of blind men bickering over their own limited experience of whatever part of the elephant they have hold of, an ear, a tail, a leg. It's a basket, it's a rope, it's a tree, it's a fan. The Buddha himself told this story, which was probably already ancient. But the parable does not take the crucial next step 
where through coming together in genuine exploration, conversation, and collaboration, the blind men come together to a three-dimensional understanding of the elephant as a whole. They share their different perspectives as a way of making sense of this huge being in all of its many parts. That is community. No one can see the whole picture. No one can declare complete knowledge or understanding. That is the great strength of humans coming together. In community, we have reserves of energy, imagination, wisdom, memory, skills, knowledge and understanding, experience and vision far beyond our own. Joko and I were once talking about the teaching partnership between Flint and I, and she said, life looks for a channel. When two people get together, it creates a much bigger channel. Here she shaped her hands into a large circle, not twice as big, but vastly, vastly bigger. I can't help imagining what an incredible channel for life we must make as a community with a shared aspiration and vow and shared foundations in the wisdom and compassion of the Buddha. It's truly breathtaking. So starting from where we are, Huogu notes, when practitioners come across the familiar Buddhist teaching of non-grasping, they think that they have to let go of everything that this is something they can do right away, and that once they've done so, everything will be fine. The truth is, we have to first see what it is that we have to let go of. We have to expose our subtle emotional afflictions and negative habits. In exposing them, we may recognize that they have been part of us for a long time, that there is a history behind our behaviors. They may be part of our defense mechanisms and survival skills, so we have to accept them only when we accept them will we be able to take responsibility for and work through them. Then we will no longer be under their influence. This is letting go of them. This is not a linear process, but a circular one. So every community has its path of challenges and upsets, disagreements, and its own conditioning and history influencing its well-being and harmony. It has its blind spots, its power fluctuations, mistakes, and general confusions. We can call this its conditioning, but it can't just dismiss or eradicate them. Our community is no different. We must continue to fearlessly investigate our activities and relationships, our structures and processes, so that we can correct whatever is unhealthy, unwise, or unkind. In recognizing issues that need to be addressed, we should avoid blaming and shame. So what should we do? <clears throat> Guogu suggests a process Shemian taught for working with painful or unhealthy conditioning, a four-step formula. Expose, embrace, transform, let go. You heard Flint mention this yesterday. So let's imagine as a community how this process might work. Someone in the community or outside of it exposes some unhealthy tendency, some blind spot, upset, or other conditioning. Maybe the whole community has not been aware of it. In exposing it, we are helping illuminate what I call the work zone. And as I always say, put out the cones. In our practice, everything is workable. That does not mean everything can be resolved, fixed, mended to everyone's satisfaction but we can meet and work with whatever arises 
especially when we meet it together. So first it is exposed like a broken water main in the street. The last thing we want to do is embrace it, right? We want to get rid of it. And there's a sense of urgency about it, an impatience. It is a disturbance to our community harmony, even to know about it. But know about it is exactly what we must do. We must not only know it intimately in all of its contours, origins, and consequences, we need to understand why it has served a certain purpose or function. As Guogu says, it may be part of our collective defense mechanism or survival skills. It may provide a certain sense of comfort or safety. It may be something that originated in our past history that's no longer needed. He says only when we accept them will we be able to take responsibility for and work through them. This is a collective responsibility, not something to be shouldered by a few. In the morning service, we say all our ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, we now fully avow. This is the embrace of our collective karmic burdens, the deep acceptance we need to begin the process of working with them. We did not create these karmic burdens, but we carry them all the same. It is legacy karma from family generations, from our schooling, from our culture and its societies, from our media and entertainment. But as we work through each issue, we are no longer under their influence and our relationship to each other deepens and strengthens until whatever causes and conditions are holding it in place ultimately dissolve and we are able to let go. Every aspect of community life and activity is like this from zazen to service intensives, inquiry, classes, and so even social gatherings. So in community, how do we think about Guogu's formula for developing non-grasping? As first expose, we must be aware of our underlying tendencies and hidden unwholesome conditioning in our community itself. This is key to clarity, wisdom, connection, and genuine care. All our ancient twisted karma, born through body, speech, and mind. When we recognize it, we step forward and speak about it, and we avow it. In embrace, we may prefer to turn away, ignore, or try to fight against our discoveries, our unwholesome collective conditioning, but we must turn toward it with a profound acceptance of its reality, its undeniable presence. We now fully avow. And the next step is to transform, and this necessary step makes it possible for us to imagine how unwholesome tendencies, habits, collective conditioning might be transformed together in the direction of all that is wholesome and beneficial for life itself. Finally, let go, and in this way, we are able to let go of all that keeps grasping in places, all that supports subtle hostility that excuses our ignorance, the transformation is complete and we have liberated ourselves, our sanghas and beyond from those negative destructive energies. So Guogu talks about the underlying feeling tones as Flint mentioned yesterday, that prepare the ground for silent illumination. The same feeling tones apply of course to a spiritual community's collective practice, our practice as community. So the four right attitudes Guogu mentions are, you no doubt recall, contentment, 
interest, confidence, and determination. He writes, contentment counters and overrides our constant tendency to grasp and chase after things. Contentment has the flavor of being at ease, grasping nothing, lacking nothing. It is being open and leisurely. Cultivating an attitude of contentment is engaging with and yet not grasping at causes and conditions. He notes, we are swayed by causes and conditions when we feel a sense of lack and when grasping is present. We inevitably get sucked into a vortex of grasping and rejecting, having and lacking. These polarities bring all, up all sorts of other issues, such as trying to escape from who we are or alternate, alternately trying desperately to be someone we're not. So he talks about the components of contentment as no thought, no form, and non-abiding. I'll talk about this in a minute. But in community, what does it mean to have a feeling tone of contentment in a community? a collective sense of ease. What does it mean when community is not driven by a sense of lack or scarcity, but rests in contentment? It almost feels like a kind of laziness, right? Isn't discontent what drives us to achieve, to strive, to create, to fix, to build? But we're not talking about apathy or self-satisfaction here, but a relaxed aliveness and vitality free of grasping. We've all been part of groups, families, workplaces fueled by discontent. They are marked by restlessness, sense of lack, impatience, conflict, struggle, and a steady feeling of dis-ease. No one wants to be there, but everyone feels stuck. And everyone's cooperating in the, in the sort of uh, construction of that kind of environment. When we're not grasping in ourselves with each other or with the things of the world, we can easily engage with them, utterly free and open and curious. We can wonder together what we might discover and become as a person, as a family, as a profession or a citizen. But most of all, how we can evolve a Sangha as a community of practice. Contentment is contagious and compelling. Almost everyone can recognize it. Almost everyone longs for it. It is fundamental to a community's well-being and healthy expression. So as Guogu writes, we have to be in tune with the body and anchor ourselves in it. Contentment resides in the heart and it has an associated bodily component. The easiest way to become familiar with contentment is to physically relax the body. The easiest way for us as a community to experience it is to relax together. This is so true for community as well as individuals. Our complete relaxation begins with the physical embodiment of our shared practice, our forms and methods, service and inquiry. In such ways, we teach the system, not only our own individual nervous system, but the entire Sangha's nervous system to completely relax together. Here we are free to be completely ourselves and to learn to be with each other, appreciating our differences and negotiating the way together. The forms and practices are not means of control or authority. They're the scaffolding we can rest against, supporting our harmonious life as a community. Many of you have spoken about the embodied experience of sitting together in the Zendo. But here we are, sitting together in this new cloud Zendo, and we can relax here too. 
Contentment does not mean that everything runs smoothly all the time. It means that we have a way to meet difficulties that, it, that is not based on having or getting, striving and competition, but mutual respect and care. That trust is the reflection of our collective contentment. Second, interest. Apathy and disengagement are terminal conditions for community and even more so for spiritual community. Soon, there is no one willing to take real responsibility, no forward growth and development, no vision, no shared purpose or direction. The lifeblood of any community is the interest of its members. We don't really know what we can be or do together. It's really kind of fascinating. We have this well-established experiment in relational Zen that is actualized in our community actions, not theorized about in academic journals. This is exciting probably the most exciting thing I've ever been part of. And I've had many wonderful experiences with starting a landscape business, directing a computer writing and research lab, a super exciting exploration of using technology in teaching humanities, directing the undergraduate writing center and helping students write and publish books in my classes, all exciting adventures. But there's nothing more amazing than what we've created together here in, at Apamata and our sister sanghas. And I feel that it has drawn people who are also very interested in this collaborative spiritual experiment. Without their interest, we will go nowhere. We're not a personality cult or a church, a school, or anything else anyone has experienced before. We are an entirely new expression of Buddhism, tailored to our own contemporary culture and drawing on new methods for growing up and waking up. So it is essential for a community that its members have genuine interest in the ongoing evolution and shared narration of the story of Apamada. This leads to three, confidence. Well, this interest can easily explode into excitement, at least for me. And it could be a very risky adventure too that we're in. Suppose it doesn't work out. Suppose things fall apart. Suppose people fall back on their habitual conditioning in groups and descend into fighting and gossip. Well, Abamata has now been established for 13 years. And before that, Flint and I were leading the precursor Sangras, Ordinary Mind and Austin Zen Center since 1994, our learning laboratories. We have traveled all over and visited many other Sanghas, large and small. We've been to conferences, met other teachers and talked about their Sanghas with them. What has developed here at Apamata is on a sound foundation, and it has a unique participatory structure for teaching, administration, programming, and governance. We have tremendous depth in teaching staff with our Dharma and trusted teachers, head students, and Zen mentors. But it's not enough that I have complete confidence in our Sangha. It's essential that at least a core group of experienced folks have confidence. Where do we place our confidence since there is no substance or permanence for a community? First, we need confidence in each other, in the teachers and in the experienced practitioners. Do they seem worthy, ethical, upright and committed to the community? Second, we need confidence in the teachings. Can I question them, investigate them, verify them based on my own observations and experience? Are they free from dogma and coercion? Are they wholesome? And do they lead toward well-being and happiness and liberation, not only for myself, but for all? And third, we need confidence in ourselves as a collective. Do we share a common aspiration? 
Are we headed in a wholesome direction? Can we govern ourselves, lead ourselves, challenge ourselves, support ourselves to learn and grow together as a community? Can we learn from our mistakes, manage uncertainty and disruption, heal losses and wounds? Confidence grows with experience. At each turn in the life of the community, we, do we emerge in deeper intimacy with each other, deeper trust, more skillful means? So far, that has all been true for Appamata, and I have every reason to be confident that it will continue in this way. As I said, however, it's not enough for me to have confidence. It's absolutely necessary for you together to have confidence, to avoid spreading rumors and gossip, catastrophizing, creating a mood of paranoia and dread. When the core members radiate confidence, everyone can relax. And with good reason, everything is working out well. We have long planned and trained for the natural as well as unexpected contingencies of Flint and I somehow being out of the picture or simply aging as we are doing with less capacity than we've had in the past. Many, many sanghas have made absolutely no provision whatsoever for the loss or incapacity of their leader or teacher. So we have entrusted teachers, literally placed our trust in them and created councils for the support of the sangha and you can place your trust in them as well. Which leads us to determination. The fourth supporting attitude Guoguo mentions is determination. Determination is the action set for contentment and interest and confidence. As such, it depends on them and is not a kind of striving and grasping. It is the energy of our work days when we come together and take active care of the Sangha. Intensives require determination not only on the part of individuals, a kind of personal determination, but collective determination, the hard work of creating registration forms, planning, organizing, scheduling, and staffing, and just carving out time to participate because the community is committed to offering intensives. In so many ways, the health and well being of the Sangha depends on our determination and our actions together. The community, first of all, is determined to survive and thrive. It's determined to offer the Dharma teachings, to support folks on their spiritual path, to take actions that are ethical, beneficial, and liberating in the world. In our case, the case of Appamata, it is determined to demonstrate a way that people can come together in community, sharing a spiritual path, honoring diversity of views, and embodying the Buddha's teachings on community. I think too, we are determined to learn and discover together just how we can do this, how this Appamata Sangha will evolve and grow. This is the determination I see in you in the way you are with each other as we come together and practice and share our lives. I saw it long ago when the tiny Sunday morning sitting group called Ordinary Mind, maybe five or six people, continued to sit every week all of the long six months I was away at the monastery, determined to keep going even though they did not even have a dedicated space to meet. The past five years or so have been hard. Flint's move, the Trump years, the pandemic, my move and other losses. So many sanghas have dissolved or merged with other groups. Only our shared determination has kept us intact in our purpose and actually growing in our clouds endo. This is a testament to our collective determination. Appamata is just too good to lose. So 
Could a Sangha experience the three stages or aspects of mind of silent illumination as Shengyan taught them? Remember, as Flint explained, they are concentrated mind, unified mind, and no mind, no self. But can a Sangha be said to have a mind? About concentrated mind, Guogu said in You Are Already Enlightened, when you are wakeful and clear in each moment and not caught up with wandering thoughts, they subside of their own accord. They subside because your discriminating mind, which is tied to self-grasping, lessens. Your discriminating mind lessens because you are aware of the totality of the body as you are sitting. Without wandering thoughts, you are not grasping at this or that, not attracted to or repulsed by particular sensations. The concentration developed in this first stage of silent illumination is not a one-pointed focus of a mind, but an open, natural, and clear presence. It is concentration accompanied by wisdom. Communities too can be distracted by projects, plans, programs, and the wishes of members darting in all directions. This concentrated mind and community means that the Sangha has a clear sense of its function and purpose without striving or grasping anything. It is relaxed yet coherent in its activities. Again, this does not mean narrowing those activities to one thing, but keeping an open, natural, and clear presence together. The second stage that Shayan taught was unified mind, and here's how Guogu describes it. When your discriminating mind diminishes, your narrow sense of self diminishes as well. Your field of awareness, which is at first the totality of the body, naturally opens up to include the external environment. Inside and outside become one. You no longer feel that the environment is out there and you are in here. This experience, the second stage of silent illumination is called the oneness of self and others. There are progressively deeper states of this second stage. When you enter in a state in which the environment is you sitting, the environment may become infinite and boundless, bringing about a state of oneness with the universe. The whole world is your body sitting there. Time passes quickly and space is limitless. You are not caught up in the particulars of the environment. There is just oneness of mind, clarity, and a sense of the infinite. This is not yet the realization of no self. It is the experience of great self. So naturally, I wonder whether a Sangha could have such a mind and how to comprehend it. Earlier, he had said about this stage, in this stage, you see clearly what needs to be done. You see how to respond, but without any reference point or opposition. It's just that the sense of self-reference is diminished and the burdens of normal vexations have temporarily vanished. In some ways, our very structure seems to support this stage as we do not have an inside or outside to the Sangha since there are no members and since we're distributed all over now, only the activity of connecting and responding. We in the environment, which once just included Austin, Texas, but has since expanded to the whole world are one activity, one process. 
through teachers, councils, the board, I have seen the community respond in this way, seeing clearly what needs to be done, taking care of things without self-reference. It's amazing to see. But I leave it up to you whether you discern this quality of unified mind in your own experience of the Sangha. As the third stage is no mind, no self. And Guru describes this stage as the clarity of this stage is like looking, the clarity of the second stage is like looking through a spotless window. You can see through it very well, almost as if the window were not there, but it is there. In the second stage, the self lies dormant, but subtle self-grasping is present. In other words, seeing through a window, even a very clean one, is not the same as seeing through no window at all. Seeing through no window is one way of describing the state of enlightenment, which is the third stage. In utter clarity, the mind is unmoving. Why? Because there is no self-referential mind. And he explains, by practicing in this way, our life gradually becomes integrated with wisdom and compassion, and even traces of enlightenment vanish. We are able to offer ourselves to everyone like a lighthouse, helping all those who come our way, responding to their needs without contrivance. This is the perfection of silent illumination. I'm pretty sure I have never seen a community, spiritual or otherwise, at this stage in which the sense of self as community has completely vanished. Maybe it's possible. If it is, my money is on Apamata. Here's the method anyway, as Guogu explains it. Self-attachment, vexations, and habitual tendencies run deep. So practitioners must work hard to experience enlightenment again and again until they can simply rest in mind's natural state. The key is to practice diligently, but seek no results. As I've said before, we do not belong to a Sangha. The Sangha belongs to us. It is an organic response to life itself, a support and nourishment as we live the spiritual life and walk this path. So we start where we are and work with all that arises. The Sangha, like each of us, is on a training path, a developmental path, and at the same time, already awakened. This is our path, our mindful work together as community. I can't think of anything more powerful, worthwhile, meaningful, or beneficial in the world. So, um, so that's my take on silent illumination from the perspective of community. And I hope that broadens our view a little bit. Appamada's programs and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much.